0: Why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. And you guys are open there. I want to bring special attention to, uh, we had a large crew of people come yesterday, spend a lot of hours at this building, uh, spending a lot of time cleaning on their hands and knees, washing, cleansing, all sorts of stuff around here. So I want to really bring some attention to uh, that team of people. If you were here and you're part of that, I want to say thank you. So we can give them a round of applause. Thank you. Thank um, couple times a year, you know, obviously we have a lot of people in this building on any given Sunday, and there's a lot of traction, a lot of stuff that needs to be cleaned on a regular basis, but we kind of, twice a year, we do like a big, deep, thick cleaning, and uh, that was yesterday, and we had a, over 30 people kind of show up for that, so again, I just want to say thank you for those people that had come out to be a part of that. Um, okay, the book of Jonah is where we're at, and what I want to do is I want to read the passage of Scripture that we're going to be taking a look at. Um, but first, I want to kind of point out something as far as the book of Jonah is concerned. That the book of Jonah basically reads um, like a four-scene uh, narrative or four-scene play. The first scene kind of goes something like this: that God tells Jonah uh, to go to his enemies uh, in this region called Nineveh to preach this message, and yet Jonah flees, and then ultimately the storm pursues Jonah. Uh, The second scene, basically, Jonah uh, flees this storm, ultimately wants to die. This is what Jonah does, is that rather than being tossed to and fro in this boat, in the storm, Jonah basically makes his decision that says, I'd rather die. That rather than going, doing what God wanted me to do, which is go to Nineveh, my enemies, uh, I'd rather die than do what God wants me to do, which is to go to these people I despise. And yet, God uh, allows his fish to pursue Jonah. Scene three is what we're going to be basically looking at here today, is that Jonah's within the belly of this great fish, and he prays, uh, surrenders to God, recognizes something of God's sovereignty, recognizes something of God's grace through this, that God was actually lovingly pursuing him, and ultimately about to deliver him. Scene four, we'll get to in the next few weeks, is that Jonah actually preaches to Nineveh, again, his enemies, uh, and yet Jonah suspects that these people are going to repent, but Jonah, at the same time, anticipates that maybe their repentance won't be that long lived. Meaning, maybe they'll kind of uh, slip back in their sinful ways, and therefore Jonah gets this front seat uh, uh, attraction of watching his enemies fall under the judgment of God. So in other words, Jonah's actually, even though he does what God wants him to do, in his heart, he still wants these people to fail. Because their failure means their judgment. So in other words, even though Jonah does what God wants him to do, Jonah's heart still is wrestling with, struggling with, absorbing, responding to, uh, being affected, being impacted by the grace of God. In other words, Jonah is a lot like you and I. So we can be Christians in theory. We can know elements about Jesus. We can be Christian. We can know Bible verses. We can journal. We can wear Christian t-shirts. We can do all sorts of Christian stuff that Christian culture loves. But in our heart, There may be still these elements in where we're just as judgmental, just as critical, just as hateful, just as bitter as anybody else in this world. It's because grace has not fully changed us to the point where we're changed. That's what grace seeks to do in our lives. And we're going to begin to see how God does it with Jonah's life in chapter 2. It's his prayer from within the belly of this great fish. Uh, I'll read it, and then we'll get to work. I'll start actually at verse 17 of chapter 1. It says this. And then the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. And out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep and the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and your waves and your billows, they passed over me. And then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed it over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, the weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up to life from the pit. Oh, my Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love, but I will with but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will pay salvation belongs to the Lord and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah upon dry land. Let's pray. God, we ask you right now that you would just open our hearts and our eyes and our minds to understand what you have to speak to us through this word. God, that what we would see here today would be your grace revealed to us. Wouldn't just be simply information coming into our hearts and our minds, but God, it would be grace changing us. So God, have your way, have your work in our hearts, and we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, As we look at this passage in this whole chapter, really, um, we're not going to look at the entire chapter. I read the whole chapter because the whole chapter basically should be read all together. It's a prayer. It's one ongoing prayer. Um, The book of Jonah, in so many ways, uh, unlike other prophetic literature, basically is a book oftentimes, uh, most prophetic literature, I should say, is oftentimes about the message of uh, the various prophets. Jonah is unique because it's more so about the messenger than it is about his message. In fact, there's not really much emphasis upon the message that Jonah preaches that's more emphasizing the messenger himself and the problems of the messenger. And this actually brings up some strange ironies within the book because, uh, ironically, uh, Jonah is the prophet of God. I mean, Jonah is part of the covenant people of God. All right, in other words, if you want to look at it this way, Jonah was part of the special, unique people of God, and yet, ironically, Jonah was the one That was actually putting his heels into the ground saying no to God. In other words, the great irony of the story is this. Is that Jonah was just as much in need of redemption as the pagan sailors and as the pagan Ninevites. That's this great irony. So it actually should cause us to some degree step back a little bit from the text and realize. Wait a minute. If even the Jews, the best of the Jews need to be saved. Then who can be saved? That's the question we need to wrestle with. Let me put it this way, there's a tendency in our culture, and in our world, to basically try to uh, collapse uh, civilization down in two categories, uh, the good guys and the bad guys. If you're really honest with yourself, oftentimes what we do is we put ourselves into the good guy camp, and everybody who's not like us, who doesn't think like us, who's not of the same religion like us, who doesn't have the same preferences in life like us, who doesn't have the same skin color like us, who doesn't have the same nationality as us, you can go down the list. Those are the enemies. I mean, if we're really super religious and we're really good at this, what we'll say is we're like, well, they're not my enemies, but, you know, I won't welcome them into my club. What you're really saying is that, "Eh, I'll deal with them, but I will never invite them to the table and have dinner with them. They'll never be honored in my house. Let me put it this way. All of that is the exact opposite of the gospel. The gospel is... That God has not abandoned us and this world to our rottenness, to our decay, to our sinfulness, to our otherness like God. In other words, we're not like God. In fact, the Bible even describes our condition before God as actually being enemies of God. So let me put it this way. All of us in this room, we can think of people that to some degree we despise. Might be someone of a You know, of a different family member or someone that has hurt us or wounded us. We all can think of big people, maybe rival. Like, let's say you work at a business and you have a rival agency. Like, those are your enemies. Or if you were brought up in a very nationalistic, prideful home where your particular nationality was sort of the source of your comfort, the source of your security, and everybody else that was not like you, you would criticize or judge. Or maybe you were brought up in a certain denomination or tribe, Christian tribe. And everyone that was, you know, not part of your tribe or didn't think theologically just like you, those were your enemy. Now, you might, like I said, may have a little bit of a religion in you that says, you know, I'm not going to utterly cast them or consign them to hell. But you're not overtly going out of your way to welcoming them into the table of your life or relationship either. In other words, you're doing the opposite of what God does. Because the gospel is, even though God has not abandoned us to our brokenness and rottenness and our sinfulness, but instead God has actually come to us and he's befriended his enemies. The people that are totally unlike him, the people that don't act like him, the people that don't love like him, the people that don't forgive like him, the people that are nothing like him, characteristically like him, God befriends them. This was the case of Jesus, wasn't it? Remember? Even the Pharisees, they look at Jesus and one accusation they can drum up against him. People are kind of trying to figure out, what do we have against Jesus? Ah, he is, he's the friend of sinners. It's like the best they can come up with. He hangs out with prostitutes. Not in an immoral way, but in a way of having dinner with them. He's not soliciting them. He's not doing anything the way that, you know, other men normally would have done. He's actually treating them with dignity Respect and value, and that shocked them, because in their mind they're like prostitutes, indignant, no respect, no value. They're trash, but Jesus says they're not trash. I value them. They're not full of indignity. I will give them dignity, and this blew their minds. But see, we are just like Jonah in so many ways, like this, because at the end of the day, a lot of times we just don't get grace. We don't understand what grace is. I think grace, if understood rightly, shocks us. It really shocks us because it doesn't make a lot of sense. So what I want to do is I think this chapter is really all about grace because uh, Jonah comes to his senses at around verse 8. And I want to read the passage to you again, just this little section right here. It says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. I'll actually come back to that first part of that verse next week as we'll kind of look at sort of part two of this Uh, same chapter but what Jonah is saying is that um, there's something about God's unfailing love God's steadfast love and another way of kind of putting this is God's grace what I want to do this morning is I want to basically look at three four things really kind of ask four questions of this text the the first question I want to really try to unpack and understand is the question is really what is grace what is grace the second question I want to ask is where uh, how does grace come to us In other words, what are the means by which oftentimes God uses to bring grace to us? The third thing is, how do you receive grace? What are the how-tos? How does this happen? What happens in our lives in order for us to be able to receive this? And finally, how do you know whether or not you've actually received grace? In other words, this is more of like an actual, like, a test. What are some of the things that you can actually look at in your life to determine, do you have grace? Have you been changed by grace? Or do you just have information about the Christian truth? Have you just memorized scriptures, Christian scriptures, or have you actually been changed by grace? So let's begin to take a look at this. First of all, uh, what is grace? What is grace? Uh, The actual Hebrew word that's used there is the Hebrew word hesed, C-H-E-S-E-D, is the way it kind of spells out in English. And a lot of different translations can translate this word as uh, unfailing love, uh, your faithful kindness. Uh, it's a word that actually appears a few times throughout the book of Ruth. Uh, it's her way of basically saying to Boaz, uh, Ruth does, that you have shown, uh, has said to me. In other ways, that God, the way that God has shown, has said to his people Israel. And it begins with grace. And I want to try to give you a couple ways to define grace. Here's a definition that I've kind of uh, put together myself. Uh, next slide. It says this. That grace is showing favor under no obligations. So in other words, grace is basically a demonstration, not just talking about favor, hey, you're a great person, but it's actually showing it, demonstrating. In other words, words become flesh. It's a demonstration. Words become flesh. They show favor, but there's no obligation. In other words, you don't have to. There's nothing in it for you. It's not adding any value uh, to you. Uh, The more you do this, in other words, if you show grace or kindness to somebody, I should say, and yet in your mind, you know that by doing that, someone's going to see you and they're going to be like, whoa, you're awesome. Like, you're an amazing Christian for actually doing that kind of thing. You're actually using that person as a vehicle so that you can get praise back to yourself. That's actually not grace. That's kind of a weird, strange way of which you're loving yourself, but you're using somebody else to do really kind things. Grace basically just says, nothing... I gain from you or from anybody else is really going to give me or increase any value or net worth of who I am. I'm just giving up without any obligation. I don't need to. I'm not required to. I just want to. This is the type of way in which God himself gives. God is a giver. God is generous as to who he is within his personality, uh, as a character of who he is. God overflows with kindness. God overflows with goodness. And so God just simply gives. And so... The next step that God oftentimes does, especially in the case of the people of Israel, when God chose his people Israel or showed grace upon the people of Israel, it wasn't because Israel was this great nation, powerful, mighty, uh, with their military. It wasn't because they were moral. It wasn't because they did something really good. Or they were living according to the Ten, Ten, Ten Commandments. That God just showed grace upon them because he has grace to show. That's how God does this. They didn't deserve it, they didn't earn it. I don't even find out later that Israel really, in a lot of ways, is just like us. There's a lot of things that they have done, or that they, they did, that didn't really, they, you know, it's really not deserving of God's grace. But that is the point of grace. Grace just shows favor and kindness, irregardless of the recipient's worth or deserving, deservedness of that particular thing. And then Grace kind of morphs from God into this word hesed. Which is another way of basically saying covenant faithfulness. God covenants himself, gives himself away to his people and says, I vow to you. I will always be true. I will never show myself unfaithful to you ever. We oftentimes, you know, in marriages here, we kind of can view marriages as more like a contract. And a contract, basically, contracts are designed with a way out. Covenants are not designed with a way out. God designed the covenant that he made with his people Israel, then ultimately through Jesus, the new covenant, to basically say, this is not on you. If you're unfaithful, I will still remain faithful. And it was this type of covenant faithfulness that Jonah reminds himself of. As he begins to realize, oh my gosh, I have been, I have been the prophet, I have been the Hebrew who has been totally unfaithful to God. But God has not forsaken has said His grace i've been unfaithful to him he hasn't been unfaithful to me this is amazing truth that he's basically reminding himself Uh, next slide is a guy by the name of paul Zahn. he wrote a book called grace and practice a theology for everyday life or everyday everyday life in this he basically says this grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return grace is love coming at you from Uh, That has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. See, oftentimes we fall into one or two camps. We look at ourselves and we think, I'm so unlovable, I don't deserve God's love. That's because you misunderstand grace. God does not love you because you are lovable. Or sometimes we think, God should love me because I'm so lovely. And oftentimes we do this in types of religious ways. Where we say there's certain things that if, if I give myself the God, we talked about this a little bit last week, that sometimes we see God more so as useful as opposed to being beautiful. And when we find God as being useful, what we do is we basically approach God on this basis of saying, uh, like God's his landlord. He's his cosmic landlord. Maybe we've offended him or upset him a little bit. He's a little bit temperamental, so we've got to make deals with him, bargain with him. God, I'll uh, go to church, I'll read my Bible, maybe even give him some money today. Because pastor pestered people. And maybe I'll do this as long as you give me that deal. As long as you work this challenge or this circumstance out. That's another way of basically saying, God, aren't I lovely? Look at the good things I'm doing. I'm reading the Bible. I'm reading your good book. There's got to be something in it for me. Give them big money away. That should make you happy, God. So maybe at least you'll keep your end of the bargain and do something for me. But look, let's be really honest with, you, with each other here. Do you think God's impressed with our giving? I mean, we really think that God's impressed with the fact that you're going to be like, I'll read my Bible. You think God's like, oh, thank you. So stoked. Finally, you're reading the book. I was hoping to see that happen. I mean, look, at the end of the day, I can remember when my kids were young. I love my kids. But when my kids were really, really young, they would paint me these little pictures. And they're really cute. I love them. But did that increase the net value of my worth or my family's worth, their paintings? Not Not really. I mean, I was satisfied. I received it. I was thankful. I was joyful because I love these kids and they're willing to give something of generosity and value, a blessing to me. I love them for that, but it's not adding value to me. But the point of the matter is, is oftentimes we view God in these types of ways that somehow we got to earn it or we become lovely. Therefore, God will somehow give us something back. All of those things are sort of caricatures of grace. Either you think you're so unlovely that God cannot give you grace. Or you think you're so lovely that you've deserved God's grace. And you've earned God's grace. Or you can leverage God's grace. Both of which are distortions. The fact of the matter is. Is that God says I give you kindness and grace. Because I'm gracious. I call you lovely not because you're lovely. But because I'm lovely. It's a gift from God. He's under no obligation to give. But he joyfully lovingly gives. And this is the type of grace that we see Uh, that Jonah comes to somewhere of understanding or awareness of in verse 8, where he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And this is what Jonah means later on in verse 9, where he says, for salvation actually belongs to the Lord. That this is God's good doing to rescue me. I can't do it on my own. I can't barter with God. I have nothing to give him. I can't Pay God off, I can't buy him off, I can't offer him something that somehow he's gonna look at that and say, I didn't have that before. So he can't be bought off. Jonah just comes to this conclusion that it's purely by grace, God's kindness, God's goodness, God's affection, and he is the one who is the source of all salvation. So the second thing I want to take a look at is really asking the question, how does grace come to us? In particular, what I'm looking at specifically are what are the vehicles? What are the means by which God oftentimes brings grace to us? And I think this is an important thing to unpack a little bit because oftentimes we're a little bit shocked. You know, we look for certain things or indicators that carry or bring God's grace and we oftentimes omit other things. In other words, someone coming to you, bringing you a you know, white envelope with 500 bucks in it, you open it and you're like, no way, this is God's grace. This is awesome, God, thank you. And that's a vehicle of grace. It's amazing, God bless me. But none of us would ever look at a whale or a fish Sometimes I might refer to this being a whale, although it's not necessarily indicated in that it's because I've been influenced by veggie tales. Uh, so if I refer to it as a whale, that's why. Um, but the reality is, no one really knows. Uh, but the point of the matter is, no one ever really looked at a large fish or a whale, or whatever it was, swallowing Jonah as actually a vehicle of grace. But it was. Let me give you exam- examples of this from the passage. Beginning verse 1 of chapter 1. Here's some of the vehicles that which God uses as agents or vehicles of his grace. Jonah one says this, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. So God comes to Jonah and he asks Jonah, he speaks to Jonah. He says, Jonah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go speak to these Ninevites. Did God owe it to Jonah to come speak to him? I mean, look, if you got a phone call from some high-honored dignitary, um, you'd be like, whoa, why are you calling me? Like, I don't, I'm unworthy of this phone call, you know? Uh, God comes to Jonah Graces Jonah, blesses Jonah, speaks to Jonah. This is a vehicle. It's through the vehicle of a word. God speaks to Jonah. The word, in sense, becomes flesh and was intended to become flesh through Jonah's actions. So it's a vehicle of God's grace. Another one in verse 4 says this. Uh, because Jonah ran from God, uh, then what God does is he begins to send vehicles of grace to capture Jonah, to redirect Jonah. For example, uh, Jonah chapter 1 4 says this. The Lord hurled a great wind. What was the source of this great wind? It says very clearly, it was God. God actually hurled this great wind. Somehow God allowed the forces of nature to combine, to work towards redirecting Jonah's path in a particular state. This was, all, again, a vehicle of God's grace. Jonah 117, again, Jonah, as I already kind of alluded to earlier, would have rather died. And you've got to understand, when Jonah was saying, throw me in the sea, and then the boat will stop being shaken apart and broken apart. What Jonah is basically saying, it'd be better for me to just die. Let me die. In other words, Jonah's basically saying this. God, I'd rather die than have to go see a bunch of Ninevites turn to you. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, honestly, like, think about some of the things in your life. Because, again, Christianity, we love. It's so easy for us to sort of reduce Christianity down to simply, uh, like I said last week, kind of like a barcode that we wear on our bodies That once we die, get scanned, and we go to heaven. But the rest of the way that we live our lives, it doesn't really matter. Meaning we can hate people, we can be judgmental of people, we can be critical of people, we can have bitterness in our heart, hate in our heart, criticism in our heart towards everybody. In other words, look just like the rest of the world. And yet God, as we see in the life of Jonah, calling Jonah to not just that. He's calling Jonah to go show grace, be the word, in a sense, come to action In his life to a bunch of enemies. And Jonah said no. I mean some of us might sort of have this mentality. I'd rather die than forgive the person that offended me. I'd rather die than be reconciled to somebody I hate. I'd rather die than be honest and pay back my debt of maybe money I stole from something. I'd rather die than have to do something that God asks me to do. I mean, honestly, Jonah is incredibly relevant for us when we think about his life compared to our lives. But So he's basically saying, I want to die, cast me overboard, let the waves overtake me, and I'd just rather die. <laughs> By grace, God sends a vehicle to not let Jonah die. A big fish comes and swallows Jonah. This is God's way of saying, your time to die is not yet. I'm not going to let you die. I have more for your life, in your life, through your life, before you go. It's a vehicle of God's grace. And then, as we look at this, we see in Jonah chapter 2, and I want to read a couple things in here. Verse 1, this is a prayer, and uh, Jonah chapter 2, even though we already read it, I want to read through a couple passages of it again. Um, it's very different from the rest of Jonah, because the rest of the book of Jonah is like this narrative, it's a storyline. But Jonah chapter 2 is like a psalm. It's a prayer. In fact, if you were to compare it to like a psalm or somehow put this into the midst of the psalms, uh, y- you wouldn't even think that it was like Jonah writing this because it just sounds like a regular psalm. Uh, the ar- ar- artistic nature of it kind of sounds like one of the psalms. And so therefore, uh, in other words, it's, it's something that Jonah probably wrote after his whole experience. I was actually reading some commentaries and they're like debating, you know, did Jonah write this from within the belly of the whale? That's just like a silly question to me. As I was reading, I'm like, really like how is like does a guy really have a pen and does he ever really have a parchment to write the stuff in the middle of the belly of a fish and who actually sits around has enough time to think about whether or not that's plausible this is crazy to me. but the point of the matter is jonah whether or not he wrote this or somebody else wrote this about jonah post uh, jonah is writing this like a song and remembering all the good things that god had done so it's poetry and uh there's imagery and metaphor within this i think is important so Jonah starts off, he says, I called out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. And out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. He says, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. And all your waves and all your billows, they passed over me. This is Jonah describing uh, that within the belly of this great fish, just imagine the motion, imagine the stench, imagine the heat and the warmth of the body of this animal. Uh, Jonah, you know, because again, this kind of raises a lot of questions. Was this literal? Was this a sort of myth? Um, Jesus actually makes reference to the fact that as Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the fish, so must the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, or belly of the earth, I should say, heart of the earth. And this is, I think, Jesus' probably way of basically saying, yes, it's true. There's no reason to question it or doubt it. But the point of the matter is, is that as this is going on, Jonah, is, his whole life is literally turned upside down, literally turned upside down. He doesn't know which end is up. And it's in the midst of this distress, this chaos, that rather than Jonah's heart becoming hardened and angry and embittered towards God, he begins to cry out to God. What's amazing about this, I want to read you this next little slide. It's a quote. Uh, it's a quote by a guy by the name of uh, Frederick Beekner, And he, here's what he says. No matter how deep the fish dove... No matter how dark the inside, no depth or darkness was enough to drown the sound of Jonah's prayer. What I love about this is that in spite of the fact that Jonah, his life was literally turned upside down. He didn't know where he was at. He had no one to turn to. He couldn't text anyone. He couldn't Facebook anyone. He couldn't call anyone to get prayer. He couldn't, like, pick up the, prayer, the, the phone and make... Phone call with the prayer chain. He had no one to contact, no one to talk to, no one to help him, no one to intervene, no one to take him from his scenario, except God. And even in the midst of the depths of Jonah's suffering and sorrow, God still hurt him. This is a classic example of a guy like Jonah who feels utterly betrayed by God. But in the midst of this feeling of utter betrayment, God turning his back, He remembers something, God's grace. He doesn't betray his own people. And this stirs up something. It's like a light flashing in his heart that begins to remind him of the fact that God is in control of all things and these are God's means of grace. These are God's vehicles of grace. At the end of the day, I think it's important for us to understand that oftentimes when these types of things happen, these challenges, these hardships, these struggles, these sufferings, God's grace, especially by way of these vehicles, like in the case of Jonah, like the whale or the fish or the storm or any of these other things, God's grace in every single one of these circumstances was not punitive, meaning it wasn't God's punishment upon Jonah, I hate you, I'm upset with you, I'm angry with you, I'm going to destroy you and you're going down. It's not punishment. It's not punitive, but it is restorative. It's really important to understand this. Because look, if you're a Christian here today, you know God. Uh, the book of Hebrews actually tells us that there are occasions and times when we sin. And when we sin, God has this way of correcting our step, correcting our path, bringing us back to a place whereby we're in right relationship with Him, understanding Him, knowing who He is. And this is troubling for some people because oftentimes the means or the ways by which God gets us there might seem very confusing confusing might seem very unorthodox. But at the end of the day, if God is God, and if God uses vehicles by which to bring us back to himself, the question is, why does God do this? There's a passage in the Psalms, and oftentimes really throughout the themes of the Bible, is that it says this, in your presence is fullness of joy. In other words, God's presence is the place where joy, shalom, fullness is ultimately found. To run from his presence is not to run into joy, which is what we oftentimes buy into lies. We think by running from God, by doing something else other than God, somehow we will find a better alternative joy than the joy that's found in God. But we don't. But because God's a good father, he loves us, he understands how we've been made, he brings us back. In other words, he corrects. It's corrective. It's restorative. So if I can put it this way, the intention of God in your life as a follower of Christ at the end of the day is not your destruction, not your abandonment, but your joy. I said this to my kids often when they were really young. Because there's times as a dad, you know, you've got you to gotta discipline your kids. Stop yelling at each other. Stop whacking at each other be nice sometimes we'd have to go far and you know give them time out or whatever both of my kids are high school so i don't really give them time out anymore but or spank them anything like that but the point of the matter is at the end of the day i would always say to them look daddy wants to take you out to get some yogurt or go for a walk or go for a bike ride or do something fun in other words i i want Times with you where we're laughing and having joy and wrestling and playing and where you're laughing and I'm laughing and we're all having fun as a family. We're doing stuff together that's just awesome. But as long as you keep turning your back and walking away or doing something in opposition to what I say... There's corrective actions going on. In other words, my grace is coming to you because I love you. If I didn't care about you, if I didn't love you, I wouldn't bother about correcting you. I would let you, in fact, one of the best ways of identifying uh, someone who is an orphan or someone is because they don't have anybody over their life directing or guiding them. It's a child that's been adopted that knows that they have a parent that loves them and guides them and brings them back to the course of life. This is what we see with God. And so God is not bringing grace into Jonah's life or your life in a way that's punitive to destroy you, to break you down, to utterly crush you. But it's restorative to bring you back to him to restore joy that's only found in him. And when you know that, it changes the perspective of the circumstances and the vehicles that God sends your way. Not to destroy you. It's maybe to pull some of the husk off of your life, some of the things that you're holding on to tenaciously. It's God's way of prying your fingers off of those things because God says those will hurt you, they'll crush you, they'll destroy you, they'll take you away from me. But it's all evidence and acts of God's grace to help us on that path. And that's what we see in the case of Jonah. So the third thing I really want to try to unpack is this question, is how do we receive this grace? How do we receive this? Well, Jonah chapter 2 verse 4, during this prayer, actually twice in his prayer, he makes reference to the Holy Temple. Listen to them. Verse 4 and verse 7, he says I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your Holy Temple. Verse 7, he says, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your Holy Temple. And what Jonah all of a sudden reminds himself and remembers from within the belly of this whale is that God had actually... Uh, somehow worked in a very powerful and profound way of grace long ago by bringing about into existence this thing called the temple. If you're familiar a little bit with any type of ancient Jewish tradition or history, you know that the temple was the most important thing to all Jewish life. And it was inside the temple that there was this place called the Holy of Holies, and inside the Holy of Holies was this thing called the tabernacle. Inside the tabernacle, or I should say the, uh, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, inside the Ark of the Covenant was this thing called the Ten Commandments, the law. And so really what God is basically saying, what Jonah is reminding himself, is that the way that God interacts and moves with us in covenant relationship, in other words, the way that relationship is unpacked and lived and enjoyed, is by abiding by his law. Abiding by it. Not negating it, not running from it, not pushing it aside, but by, by abiding by it. I'll give you an example of how this works out in a very practical way in life. If you're, for example, a musician, we've got a lot of musicians in the search Let's say, for example, you are either a musician, you're the lead singer of a band, or you are like the rest of the other people, you desire desperately to be a lead singer of a band. All right? You want to be a musician. You're kind of a want-to-be person. But the point of the matter is, let's just say that you're the lead singer of a band, and you've got a band of like four or five people, part of you, and you write the songs, and you perform the songs, and you sing the songs, and you've got a guy that just kind of joined the band. He's a drummer, and he says, I want to play with you. He's a really gifted drummer. So once you start playing... And you're singing a song, and he as a drummer is playing an entirely different song. And it's totally offbeat. And you ask him, like, what's going on? It's like, I'm playing the song. It's not the same song I'm playing, though, is it? No, it's a totally different song. It's a song I wrote. Like, but I'm the lead singer of this band, and I'm playing my song. And for us to have harmony, for us to have shalom, for us to have peace, you have to play according to the script or the law or that which I've given you. But I don't want to play according to that. I want to play according to my thing. What you have is disharmony. You have disorganization. You don't have shalom. You don't have peace. You have chaos. And really what needs to happen is a repentance. A repentance from wanting to be the lead of the band to just being a bit player in the band. And in a lot of ways, this is what takes place on a cosmic level. God is creator. God is maker. And you and I are created. We have been made or designed by God for His good purposes to bring Him glory, to sing His songs. In other words, joining with Him. Let me give you another analogy. Jesus would put it this way. He would oftentimes give these little parables, these little analogies, metaphors. He would say like this. He says the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like going to a banquet, this big wedding feast, and you're everyone's invited. And they're going to be those that are going to say, I want to go. And they put on the right clothing that's needed for that particular wedding day. And they go in and they enjoy. And they sit at the table. And they're at this big table. They're not, there's not hierarchy. There's not different levels of, you know, leadership and higher people and lower people. Everybody's at the table. Whether you're rich or poor. Whether you're, you know, ethnic Israel or non-ethnic Israel. Everybody's at the table. That is really good news. But others will say... I don't want to dress in that type of wedding clothing. I don't want to go to that party. I don't want to sit at that table. What Jesus is saying is that at that table is shalom. Peace. Integration. Every other table. Or the opposite of that banquet or of that wedding feast. Is not shalom. It's the opposite of shalom. It's not integration. It's disintegration. It's not wholeness, shalom, it's brokenness, it's shatteredness. And so what Jesus is saying is that grace is intended to bring about wholeness for broken lives, and all are welcome to come. But some will say no, and their lives will continue to unravel, fall apart, and become broken. And so what we see with Jonah is that Jonah, rather than turning away from God, rather than hardening his heart in the midst of these vehicles that God was sending to him, Jonah remembered the temple and said, God has taken care of my sin. Because it was in the temple, on the Ark of the Covenant, there was a seat, it was called the mercy seat. And it was on that seat that blood was put once a year As a means of washing the sins of all the people. And what Jonah was doing, he was reminding himself, remembering of the fact that God had made provision to blot out, to wash out, to wash away, to cleanse his sin. And so in that, Jonah's remembering the fact that I am one of God's covenant people. And it's not because of what I've done. It's not because of how I've lived my life. Because in spite of how I've lived my life, or in spite of how I should have lived my life... I was a failure. I sinned against God. I resented God. I revolted against God. I was a rebel against God. Of all people who should have honored God and obeyed God and done what God wanted me to do, I did the exact opposite. I'm deserving of God's broken, God's judgment, and yet God has already taken care of my sin and my shame because he remembers the temple, in particular the mercy seat. The book of Hebrews actually tells us that in the New Testament, Jesus is... The mercy seat. In other words, when God forgives our sin, it's not that God just picks up the edge of a rug and sweeps our stuff under the rug and forgets about it. You cannot have forgiveness like that. The way that forgiveness happens is somebody has to absorb the pain. In other words, every time forgiveness ever happens, it's painful. And what we see in the case of God... In the case of Jonah, remembering the temple, he remembered that in the temple, innocent blood was shed. For you and I, sitting on this side of the cross, we look back, not remembering the temple, remember the cross, and we remember that for God to forgive us, innocent blood needed to be shed. In other words, forgiveness was costly. Free to you and I, but very costly to God. Because in Christ, God was at work reconciling us Himself by absorbing the penalty that you and I deserve. In other words, to put it this way, Jesus on the cross was disintegrated so that you and I, who live our lives being broken, disintegrated, can be given shalom. Jonah remembered the fact that God had made a way. And I would even suggest that for you and I, the way that we receive this grace is we need to do what Paul said in Colossians chapter 1 and 6. He puts it this way. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. And he says, just as it's been doing among you since the day that you heard it and truly have understood God's grace. What Paul is basically saying here is, in short, is that this good news is the gospel. That God isn't abandoned the world. That God has not abandoned you. But that God has actually intervened and provided means and ways by which to take care of our sin and our shame. How? By a vehicle. God chose a vehicle. Not the prophet Jonah, but a better prophet, Jesus. And so what Paul goes on to say, and those who heard it truly understood this grace, something's happening to your life. You're bearing fruit. You're changing. Your life is like a garden. It's beginning to bear forth fruit. You're coming alive. It's good. This is what Paul's saying, is that this is how... We receive that grace. We believe is what Paul is saying. You believe. You hear, and you understood, or you believe. Three things I'll say real quickly about faith. I've spent a whole time talking about this, but I won't. So I'm going to be very punctual. First of all, faith is doubting your doubts. It's doubting your doubts. In other words, those things that keep you from trusting God. Those things that cause you to think, "Well, God's not trustworthy because X, Y, and Z." Have you ever thought about doubting your doubts? Doubt your doubts. I mean there's things that cause us to disbelieve what would it look like if rather than believing those things that cause us to disbelieve because that's what we do what would happen if we actually began to doubt those doubts second thing trust the facts christianity is actually built upon historical facts jesus truly lived jesus truly died jesus historically factually rose again from the dead. What does that mean? We did a whole series on what does that mean? If Jesus truly rose again from the dead, and he did, what does that mean for us? It means that the world's different. That means that Jesus, because this actually, factually happened, you can remind yourself of this. This isn't just myth. This isn't just sentimentalism. This isn't just you kind of looking back and thinking, well, I thought God loved me. This is you anchoring your faith, not just in blind leaps into the darkness, I don't even know who came up with that thought that faith is leaping blindly in the darkness. That's absolutely silly. I don't know who thought of that. It's not even sensical. But the reality is faith is actually taking all the facts that you know about God, that he's revealed about himself to you, and letting those things shape your thinking. I'll give you an example. If you had to get a root canal, all right? Anybody had to get a root canal? If you had to get a root canal, you probably did a little bit of research to find out, make sure that you had the right... Dentist to go to. Because you didn't want to go to some guy that was like charging like 20 bucks an hour to some dark alley, you're like, I'll go to him, he's cheap. Like, you probably aren't going to do that. It's a little bit sketchy. But the point of the matter is, you wanted to make sure that this guy was legit. So let's say he came, highly recommended. You had some friends that had some root canals, health, everything went well. Then come back with parallel, paralyzed faces, whatever, everything was fine. You're like, okay, this guy's probably legit. So, in other words, you have all the facts, all the evidence that this guy is legit that for you to entrust yourself into his hands, for him to do the root canal, you're actually in good hands. But the moment you walk into that dentist's office and you sit down in the chair and you begin to look around and you see like these little instruments and you see scalpels and you see all sorts of things that you don't even know what they're all about, you begin to have these doubts, don't you? You're like, am I doing the right thing? Uh, is this guy going to kill me? Um, is that thing going to stick into my mouth? It's a really long needle. It's Is there even room in my mouth for that needle? And then you begin to doubt the weather. Now, did you get new information that tells you that this guy is somehow some psycho crazy doctor that's going to kill you? No. You just had normal life that came, and you had doubts. Doubt those doubts. Trust the facts. Final thing, commit yourself to the one who is good. That's what Jonah did. As if to say, God, I don't understand. I don't know why... This is the vehicle you chose. This is your means of grace. And I'm not committing myself to knowing the circumstances, but I'm committing myself to knowing the one who holds the circumstances. That's different. We stand on the opposite side of the cross than Jonah. The reason why you and I can trust God is because if God is big enough to lay our sin upon his son and raise him from the, again from the dead, is he not big enough to also harness and use the circumstances in our life, no matter how challenging, how disruptive, how discouraging, how confusing that might be, is God not big enough to use those things for some bigger, better, greater meaning for our good? That's the question you've got to deal with. So final question, and I'm done, is how do you know whether or not you've received this grace? In short, I can spend a whole sermon on this, unpacking lots of different points, but in short, I'm just going to say this. Your heart actually expands instead of shrinks. If grace has really grabbed a hold of you, I mean, and I'm not saying, you know, you put the barcode on you and you're going to die and go to heaven. I'm saying if grace has actually begun to change you, shape you, Your heart expands. You love people you used to hate. You invite people into your life you used to be frustrated by. You see flashes of God's glory that just bring you to your knees like they've never done before. Your heart becomes softened in areas where it was once cynical. This is the difference between knowing the gospel being transformed by grace and just knowing about the gospel. Having a bunch of facts written down in your little leather bound journal and memorizing scripture. It's grace that changes us. Not just simply adhering to some form of religion. It's grace. I'm going to read a little poem. a band's going to come on up and we'll finish with a couple songs. Partake of communion. We have some rugs in the front for you guys to so just get down on your knees if you'd like to just worship the Lord. And we'll have some people off in a to the side they want to pray for you We have some people that love you guys and every week they're there to pray with you and i realize every single week there are people that come in here and you guys have big things going on in your life maybe some of you may feel like jonah abandoned sucked into something really big and you have no way of knowing how to get out of this thing um we have people here that would love to pray for you in the midst of your challenges and your circumstances to remind you of scripture um Take advantage of that. They love you. They would love to just lay hands on you and pray for you. I want to read you this, uh, this, this song, this uh, poem. It was written by a guy named William Cooper. Uh, he was a guy that had actually written several different songs. But um, this particular song, um, some believe that he had actually written this shortly after a failed a suicide attempt. He was a guy that struggled throughout his entire life with severe depression. And uh, he was one of uh, Britain's most notable Um, poets of his own era Um, but this song some of you guys may have heard of it before or been familiar with it's called God Moves in Mysterious Ways but I want you to listen I'm going to read three stanzas of the the song it's really about um, him wrestling with how to deal with the storms and challenges and circumstances that are in my life without being crushed by them how can I move my heart to trust by faith in a God that's far bigger than The storms, then the fish, then the circumstances that God has used in my life to draw me back to himself. How can I use those things to bring about worship and praise to become evidences of grace melting and molding and shaping my heart rather than those circumstances in my life just making me more embittered, more angry, more hardened. That's what he said. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on a sea and he rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds you so much dread, are big with mercy and will break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God, I pray that you would just cause us to realize that so oftentimes behind the things that we dread the most, that we are fearful of the most, those things that we fear will take us down and crush us and destroy us. God, behind those things, somehow, if we can just see there's a heart, God, that is leading us to Yourself, which is to lead us to joy. That Your intentions, God, really are joyful intentions. You love us, and we can know that love, because... Of what Jesus did for us. He was crushed, so we who are crushed will not be ultimately crushed. He was bruised, so we who are fragile from our bruising can be made whole. So, God, I pray that you would just turn our eyes to Jesus, and that rather than just simply finding you useful, as we oftentimes do, that we would actually, maybe even for the first time this morning, find you absolutely beautiful. So God, do that here in this place right now as we worship you and as we sing to you. Rugs in the front. People off to the side that want to pray for you. Communion in the back. If you've got your kids in the back, you're more than welcome to bring them in here. Participate. Worshiping together. Let's sing.